I'll sing it. It's 2017. Time to give NPR One a try. Our app for public radio stories and all your favorite podcasts. And hey, NPR has a new show. It's called 1A, and it's your daily detox from the social media echo chamber, which is to say, civil discourse with people who don't always agree. Check out 1A with Joshua Johnson from WAMU and NPR at npr.org slash podcasts. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our first weekly roundup of 2017. We are only five days into this new year, but we already have a lot to talk about. Russia, hacking, Donald Trump's latest cabinet appointments, the coming fight over Obamacare, plus a listener question or two or three, and what we can't let go this week. I'm Sam Sanders, reporter here at NPR. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. Happy New Year. What did you guys do for New Year's? Stayed home. It was very nice. Just kind of got reacquainted with the kids and the puppies. Reacquainted? Did you lose acquaintance (laughs) with your children over the last year? I think it's possible. Okay. And I I was uh, on an airplane with a four-year-old. Lord. Landed around 1030, got home around 1130. That's a little too acquainted. Just in time to watch the uh, ball drop. (laughs) To watch Mariah Carey. Uh, I was watching CNN. Uh Uh-huh. Susan? Uh, We had a pizza party. Oh, Go you. Nice. Yeah. My husband makes amazing pizza. So we had a pizza party at a friend's house, and he made 10 pizzas for like 25 wow. people. Whoa. And it was great. Wow. So a friend of mine uh, has a house in the Catskills. So like 25 of us all went up there and had New Year's in a cabin in the woods. Oh, that's wow. nice. It was miraculous. Back at it again, though. Back to work. Back to work. Before we get started, a couple of things. First, welcome back for those of you who checked out of listening over the holidays. No hard feelings. Right, right. Second, check out our episode from Tuesday. It's behind this one in the podcast feed. It's all about how the GOP decided and then undecided to change House ethics oversight on the very first day of the new Congress. Also features Tamara and Scott Detrow talking about the dab. I love that moment. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's get to it. Speaking of Congress, Susan, you are not here in the booth with us. You're actually in your own much smaller booth on Capitol Hill. I miss you guys, though. Miss you, too. So it's been busy, right? It has been busy. You know, the first week back in Congress is generally just busy because it's like, think about like your first week back from summer vacation and everybody's like talking about their holidays and there's a whole, you know, class of new members up here. So there was obviously earlier this week they had um, when new members come in and they get sworn in and you had what people were calling Biden TV where all the new senators (laughs) and the existing senators get their picture with the vice president. They do the same thing on the House side with Paul Ryan. Normally, the first day back in is kind of like the feel good day of the year. Everyone's in a good mood. All their, A lot of people bring their kids and their kids are all dressed up. And this is kind of the day where people's families come to town. Except for Paul Ryan shushing everyone. It's true. He does that. He's a shusher. He is a shusher. He shushed four times from up there. Everybody needs the... one shusher. No. you got to have at least one shusher. It worked, shushing though. Is, it worked. Is... It's, the shushing worked. Okay. Um, and normally, you know, it's a very ceremonial day, but there was obviously a little extra drama this time around where I think Republicans, as one lawmaker said to me, uh, unnecessarily shot themselves in the foot at the start of the week where they had that ethics mishap that you guys talked about in the earlier podcast. Um, and, you know, but quickly, the shift this week has been about two main things. One, the conversation up here is really consumed about Obamacare and the repeal and replace fight that's going to be playing out over the coming weeks and months and the Russia hacking and the and 
Congress is really starting to dig in on this issue and they're holding hearings today. And it's sort of the first bite of the apple that members of Congress are having to really dig in on this issue in anticipation of the report that's coming out, I believe, tomorrow. Yeah, so uh, the report today comes was, out Monday. But Trump sees it Friday. And Obama has already been briefed on it. Gotcha. So Obama's seen it already. Friday, Trump sees it. Monday, we all see it. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be an unclassified version that's released that uh, James Clapper talked about today, the director of national intelligence, that uh, they're going to try to make as much of it available as possible without giving away how they gathered the intelligence. And let's talk about what's happening on the Hill today. There's this much-hyped Senate Armed Services Committee hearing on, quote, foreign cyber threats to the United States, a.k.a. Russia. That unreleased report was really in the air at this hearing today, Tam. Uh, you watched it. Who were the big players? The big players uh, were John McCain, who is the chairman of the committee, who called the hearing, who has been pretty open about his feelings about the Russia hacking and his concerns about it and, and his concerns about the president-elect's seeming lack of concern. Uh, and brought before the committee uh, was the director of national intelligence, James Clapper, Admiral Mike Rogers, who's the commander of U.S. Cyber Command. Yeah. So there were hours of conversation. What were, I guess, the three biggest moments that you saw, Tamara? Right off from the very beginning, John McCain responded to some tweets that have been coming out in the last few days. You don't say. (laughs) Uh, So in the last few days, Donald Trump has tweeted about Julian Assange. Um, of WikiLeaks. Of WikiLeaks fame, sort of quoting Assange, who had appeared in a Fox News interview with Sean Hannity, saying, well, Assange says a 14-year-old could do these hacks, and why didn't the DNC have better security? And Assange swears he didn't get this from Russia. Hmm. And then today, uh, Trump tweeted a little bit more about that, uh, saying, well, the media doesn't understand. I'm just saying what Assange is saying. But the, I'm not endorsing him. But most of folks on the Hill... Democrats and GOP don't trust Assange, and they do think that Russia was involved, right? Absolutely, including also the intelligence community. And one of the concerns with Assange, and this is what John McCain gets into in this clip I want to play, is that before he was releasing DNC documents and John Podesta emails about Hillary Clinton's campaign, uh, he was releasing information that the American government believes put people at risk. And so here is that clip of John McCain. General Clapper, I just have to mention the name Mr. Assange has uh, popped up, and I believe that he is the one who's responsible for publishing names of individuals that work for us that put their lives in direct danger. Is that correct? Yes, he has. And do you think that there's any credibility we should attach to this individual, given his record of... of, uh, Not my uh, view. Not your view. Admiral Rogers? I second those comments. You know, another thing that really stood out to me, though, uh, was that when you had... Clapper saying that he wasn't going to really talk much about this report that's coming out next week, but said that he was more resolute uh, about the October 7th statement that they had put out 17 intelligence agencies, put out a joint statement saying that they believed that Russia had hacked those DNC emails, that they had tried to interfere in the election. He said that he would talk more about the motive, which we've already learned through other reporting. The agencies believe that the motive was to try and elect Donald Trump. He said there were multiple motives. That was one thing that stood out to me in the hearing is he actually said there when when this report comes out, there are actually multiple motives, which 
was interesting. Yeah, I mean, one of the ulterior motives that uh, people have talked about as being possible is that, it, frankly, Russia didn't think Donald Trump was going to win. They just wanted to undermine American democracy because, you know, Putin didn't really like Hillary Clinton because in 2011 she had gone and said that the legitimacy of the parliamentary elections in Russia were not so legitimate. So he had this beef with Hillary Clinton and wanted to expose American democracy as not being on the up and up. Sue, what's your take? So one thing I think is also interesting to point out about the hearing today and more broadly is part of it is just the tone in which Trump has taken in which he talks about the intelligence community. And that came up in the hearing today where I don't think anybody is really questioning the commander in chief's ability to question the intelligence he's given. In some ways, they should do that. It in, in some ways, Trump has, however, seemed to criticize the people that work in places like the CIA and the NSA. And what both Clapper and Rogers brought up, which I saw a bit of at the hearing today, is they are concerned about this hurting the morale inside of these agencies. What we do, I think, is relevant. And we realize that what we do is in no small part driven in part by the confidence of our leaders in what we do. And without that confidence, I'm, I just don't want a situation where our workforce decides to walk, because I think that really is not a good place for us to be. Trump had, in one, a couple of tweets, put the word intelligence in quote marks. Um, As in, like, to insinuate that they might, might not be that intelligent? That would be what the quote marks yeah. would, in theory, mean. Um, and Senator Claire McCaskill, who's a, a Democrat from Missouri, this was probably one of the more partisan exchanges of this. She really tried to bring out the idea that the president-elect is attacking the intelligence community. Here's that. Who, who actually is the benefactor of someone who is about to become commander-in-chief trashing the intelligence community? I think there is an important distinction here between uh, healthy skepticism, which policymakers, to include policymaker number one, uh, should always have for intelligence, but I think there's a difference between um, skepticism and uh, disparagement. Yeah. And that seems like a key point that Sue was getting at on whether or not, you know, this is going to hurt not only morale, but also I think to Claire McCaskill's point, who does that actually benefit? If American democracy is undermined to make it look like it's rigged, if U.S. intelligence is undermined to make it look like it's cooked, if the American media is undermined to make it look like it's biased, who gets helped by that? Clearly America's adversaries. Well, and, you know, there's a difference between having a skepticism and disparaging the people doing the work, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what someone like Claire McCaskill was bringing up. Um, and also just that they, they have been wrong at times, but they haven't typically been partisan. Yeah. Should we expect any of Trump's rhetoric on Assange and on Russia to change once he gets his Russia briefing tomorrow? Because there's already been reports and intelligence and statements from the intelligence community saying that Russia's been involved with our election. Trump hasn't listened to that. Will Did a private briefing change his mind? You know, for five years, Donald Trump, questioned whether or not Barack Obama was born in the United States. Then he, you know, kind of came out in the campaign and said, sure, fine, he was born in the United States. Then he met with Barack Obama in the Oval Office, said it was the first time he'd met him and said, I like him. He's, and now they talk on the phone a and lot. And now they're now they get along. So I would anticipate, I would think that the American president would at some point start believing American intelligence over Russians. Okay. Enough of that. 
There's another big issue on the Hill this week. It is called Obamacare. It seems to be at risk, right, Sue? Well, it depends on where you, how you feel about Obamacare. Is <laughs> you feel whether it's at risk or if there's a huge opportunity to change it. Um, this is going to be the big legislative battle of 2017. It started initially this week where the Senate took the very, very small first step to repealing the health care law. Uh, that effort is probably going to consume the next couple of months. And then what they're going to replace it with is going to consume the months after that if they get there. Uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan this morning talked a little bit more firmly about that timeline. And he said the Republican repeal and replace plan will happen in 2017. It may not be fully implemented this year. That would be unrealistic to do in any way. But that there's been a lot of confusion about when this will take place. How long will it take? Uh, and he also committed, which was notable, where he said, you know, he thinks he says Democrats are trying to scare people into thinking that we're going to take their health care away. That's not going to happen. That's not true. Ain't going to happen was his line. So I think that's one of those clips that we may hear again and again if a plan emerges that may force people off of their health care. And right now, it's just a million open questions. We don't know what repeal looks like. We don't know what replace looks like. And we don't know what the political impact of this is going to be. We do know it's going to be sort of the battle royale, which is why President Obama came up to Capitol Hill this week to meet with Democrats to sort of rally the troops there to fight for the law. And you had Vice President-elect Mike Pence, who's going to be sort of the legislative liaison for the Trump administration, doing the exact same thing, meeting with House Republicans, sort of drawing the battle lines. So when do we expect to see something at all? happen with this? You know, they started a process this week, really simple way to I'd sometimes describe it as a fast track process in that it'll allow Congress to uh, consider certain budget bills in the Senate with just a simple majority, which means Democrats can't block it. Uh, but it's only limited in what they can do. In in that process, you can only touch on things that affect taxes or spending or the debt limit, hmm. which means things like uh, covering pre-existing conditions. They can't touch that in this process. They're going to have to do that somewhere else if they want to touch it at all. And that is where and this would, is going to be. They would need 60 votes for that, right? Well, that is where they're going to run into this wall, which is the United States Senate. And to do major sweeping health care proposals that they may want to try, you're going to need to get some Democrats on board for that. And Chuck Schumer, who's the new Democratic Senate minority leader, uh, has said that Democrats aren't going to make this easy for Republicans. They're not going to make it easy for them to repeal it. If anything, uh, you know, the party's planning a series of events and campaign rallies across the country in the coming weeks, not only to try and protect Obamacare, but to lay down this broader fight that they want to make 2017 about, which is about entitlements, about Social Security and Medicare. And this is going to be fascinating to watch because, remember, Trump did not campaign on this kind of stuff the same way guys like Paul Ryan did. Right. You know, he's a guy that campaigned on protecting Social Security and protecting Medicare and making your health insurance better. And better means more expensive when it comes to the government in terms of spending, maybe not out of your own pocket. But when the government's going to do more of something, that takes more money. So where Trump navigates this you know, this balance between fiscal conservatives and their vision of what Medicare should look like, the Paul Ryans and the Tom Prices, and that commitment that he made to voters to protect the existing structure of these things is going to be fascinating to watch. Yeah. Even only this step that requires 51 votes, the part where they would repeal at least the, the financial portions of it. Even there, there are fissures developing. So in 2015, the Republican Congress did pass a bill to repeal Obamacare. They sent it to President Obama and President Obama vetoed it. Because they knew President Obama was going to veto it, it was a pretty easy vote. 
there's no risk, no harm, uh, no chance that they could catch the tailpipe of the fire truck. Um, but now they have a president who will sign it. And so many Republicans would like to repeal the Medicaid expansion. Other Republicans in states that have greatly benefited from the Medicaid expansion are afraid of hurting their constituents. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have Republicans uh, like Rand Paul, uh, who are concerned about the budgetary implications of this and may not support it either. So they could conceivably have a, a challenging time getting even to 51. So I have a question. What is the most realistic plan? Because they're, you know, Ryan talked about them having a plan, but it was really just ideas. But he's had a plan. Orrin Hatch has had a plan. What's the most realistic kind of plan? I got to tell you, they have no idea right now. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of people, and Paul Ryan's right, there are a lot of people with ideas. They are There is no shortage of how they should do this. What's interesting and what I think is something to listen for in this debate is what is the metric for success? And I think that right now, Democrats will point to um, more Americans have coverage than ever before. So is the metric for success for them to keep these 20 million people who have gotten health insurance, continue to have them covered, or should the metric for success be maybe there's fewer people that are covered, but it's much more affordable for more people? Hmm. And we don't know the answer to that question either. And I think it's going to be really hard to do if they can't get some Democratic buy-in on this. If you if you look back for what happened with Obamacare, the Democrats won this election, they claimed a mandate, but they passed a health care law that was purely partisan on purely partisan votes. Now, you can argue that Republicans had reasons to oppose it. You can make all those arguments, but it was a purely partisan bill. We're now in a situation where Republicans have won a sweeping election. They control all levers of government. They have claimed a mandate. Paul Ryan said today, we were elected to repeal Obamacare. But if they're going to do this in a purely partisan way, if this is going to happen with just Republican votes, do we just recreate this situation? But now Republicans are on the receiving end of blowback. What and we have learned it. is Americans feel very personal about their health care. Yeah. And I mean, there's a, a reason they came up with repeal and replace as a slogan, because repeal by itself it's not is not enough. It's, it's just so right. Exactly. Here's my question strategically for the GOP. They've been opposed to Obamacare since it was created, some seven going on eight years. They take office now. Wouldn't you expect them to have a clearly articulated plan that the entire party is behind to push through? I'm not seeing or hearing that from the party as a unified front. But Why not? It was all make-believe before. They didn't have all the levers before. And so, so there were people with ideas, but there was never any impetus or no deadline saying, or pressure to say this is the one path forward but because isn't the everybody wanted to have their own path. But isn't the deadline the end of Obama's term and the potential to have your own president in office? Like no one there was like, let's have a contingency plan that has something ready just in case we win. Look, it's not like they didn't try. You know, I mean, they tried to come up with various plans, various people came up with various plans, but the devil always in the details, whether or not you can keep costs down and do all that. But I would argue, frankly, that this is a different Republican Party than in years past. You know, before Obama, pre-Obama, the Republicans were seen as a party of management, of business uh, ideas, you know, slimmer government, but effective government. That is not the message we've seen since the Tea Party took over. You know, the message has been to reduce the size of government, to stop government from doing things, not to manage the government more effectively in the vein of a Mitt Romney and the way he ran Massachusetts as governor. Uh, and so you could disagree 
with this or not. But what you see on the Hill, you know, Boehner and some of the problems he had trying to squeeze those, you know, frogs in the wheelbarrow, right? Yeah. And what I wonder, and I've been thinking a lot about this this week, is that going back to like the Obamacare, like that fight and the parallels there is that Democrats and Chuck Schumer is one of those Democrats who say with some regret that maybe they overplayed their hand there, that the country was really yearning for a jobs and economic message and that Democrats should have acted on that and not done health care, that maybe they they zigged when they should have zagged. And I wonder so much of Trump's. Yes, he talked about Obamacare. And yes, Republicans have been talking about repeal and replace. But this also seemed like an election where the economy and wage stagnation and jobs were the thing that people were really hungered for. And I'm, you know, whether Republicans want to force another really divisive, partisan health care fight on the country, do they risk overplaying their hand when maybe they should be focusing on the things that Trump campaigned on that were much more popular, like infrastructure and just job plans and, and, and economic growth plans instead of trying to relitigate the Obamacare fight because it is so politically toxic in the country. But there's no way they can't. There's no way they can't. But there are things that Congress can do to improve the health care system that does not necessarily involve engaging in a repeal fight, which is a much more uh, politically dangerous and, you know, potentially costly fight for them. All right. Time for a quick break. Once we're back, we'll discuss what's going to happen next week. Support for NPR and the following message come from LearnVest, an online financial advice company that believes you should focus the same attention you give to the health of your mind and body to your finances. It's wellness for your wallet. Get a $50 credit when you sign up today or go to LearnVest.com politics. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Care.com. Who wants you to know that if you paid $2,000 or more a year for a nanny, then you're responsible for nanny taxes. Care.com slash HomePay is a comprehensive resource for busy families that can handle all of your employer payroll obligations, from setting up automatic payments to preparing tax returns. Go to Care.com slash HomePay to learn more and get a free consultation. All right, let's talk about next week, guys. There's going to be a lot of news. We'll try to do an episode on Tuesday night and an episode on Wednesday night because Tuesday, President Obama delivers his farewell address from Chicago. Then the very next day, Donald Trump says he'll have a, quote, general press conference. This is apparently to address some of his business ties. You may recall that he had previously announced a press conference that he said would take place back in December. And then the Trump team said he'd been too busy picking his cabinet and it was moved back. And Susan, Wednesday will also be a pretty busy day on Capitol Hill, right? Mm-hmm. So normally, obviously, Donald Trump is not going to be sworn in until January 20th. But the Senate gets moving on all of his nominations now. And what they try to do historically is get through a lot of these confirmation hearings. So on his first day in office, they can improve, approve in mass on the Senate floor some combination of these nominees. Uh, President Obama on his first day in office got seven of his cabinet nominations. I don't think it's going to be that easy this time around. Senate Democrats have already sort of signaled that they are going to thoroughly uh, investigate and use every tool at their disposal to sort of slow walk many of these nominations, particularly some of the ones that they find more controversial. Their argument is that a lot of the nominees that Donald Trump has picked have no public record, that these are newcomers to public office. 
people like Rex Tillerson, who is his nominee for Secretary of State and is an Exxon CEO, people like Steven Mnuchin, who works on Wall Street, uh, and they want to thoroughly vet these nominees. Uh, one I hear a lot about is uh, Tom Price, who's a congressman from Georgia, who's the nominee for Health and Human Services Secretary, that Democrats really want to make this hearing uh, a place to start sort of this groundwork of the fight over Obamacare and his past positions on privatization of Medicare and his positions on what to do with the health care law. So I expect a lot of fireworks in a lot of these confirmation hearings because Democrats are going in really ready to fight. But just to be clear, we're talking about a bunch of Senate confirmation hearings, including for Jeff Sessions, Trump's attorney general pick, possibly also for his secretary of state pick, Rex Tillerson, and a whole bunch of others. That may all happen on the same day next Wednesday. That's why we have C-SPAN uno, dos, tres. But there, is, but there, but there are only C-SPAN, C-span el ocho. Yeah, but there, there is no C-SPAN ocho, and we're going to need it. Um, C-SPAN dieciséis. <laughs> but, but, and I think that is probably the point, is to dilute the American attention span. Huh. Uh, potentially, it's also on the very same day as Donald Trump's first press conference in like 170 days. Um, Could this be um, a classic distraction technique? The chaos theory of politics. Mathematicians out there don't get mad at us because the chaos theory is actually more closely aligned with the butterfly effect. But it's like one small thing affects things more broadly. But essentially, Donald Trump has done this Throughout the entire election, we shouldn't be surprised. But that- is this Trump strategy or congressional Republican strategy? Oh, I think it's coordinated. And it's okay. kind of all together. I mean, it's one of those things where you've noticed every time that there's some big amount of news, Trump throws himself in there and he'll make news on three or four different fronts that on a normal day he would have to answer for or his people would have to answer for any number of things. I mean, just think about this week. He tweeted about GM, North Korea, the same day as GM. He's tweeting about the Affordable Care Act and House ethics, right? So it's like all of those things could have had uh, their own storylines been pushed through, uh, you know, been fact-checked on GM and people would have brought that in. But you know what? Like most viewers, most listeners can't take in all of that information. They're only going to pick off one or two of those things at most. Uh, And you don't know necessarily below all the noise, below the clouds, what winds up sneaking through. And Democrats don't actually really have the votes to block these nominees. All they have is the potential to make these hearings painful for President-elect Trump and for the nominees and potentially embarrassing or to use it to try to pierce the notion of Donald Trump as a populist, for instance. And if there are six hearings going on at once, then their ability to use those hearings for political gain is reduced. Let's also discuss what we should expect from Obama's farewell address on Tuesday. All presidents do this. What are you guys looking for in that speech? Well, I would say just, you know, coming back to what we were talking about earlier and the fact that the president was on Capitol Hill this week and the fact that health care is such in the forefront of the debate, I would imagine that he would use this farewell address to defend the health care law and to argue for improving it and not repealing it and to make the case for his legacy there. I mean, the health care law, the Affordable Care Act really is his signature domestic achievement in office. And I think he, on his way out the door, is probably going to make a case for it. I'm also curious, just as a listener, to one of the things Obama's talked about in his final interviews is that how he sort of failed. I don't know if you'd use that word, but he's been candid about the fact that one of his 
issues was he really did try to change the way Washington worked or the culture of Washington, and that didn't work out at all for him. Uh, And I'm curious to see if he acknowledges that at all or if he tries to message that or give a message for the future about political discourse and the way Washington works. Uh, And he's been really candid about it. So I would be curious to see. I think in these farewell addresses, presidents do try to sort of swing for the fences and have a bigger, broader, universal message. I bet he tries to bring back optimistic Obama a little bit, too. I would think going uh, out and having uh, somebody who, uh, like Donald Trump, who is the complete antithesis of Barack Obama, somebody who um, has basically waged a campaign against Barack Obama saying make America great again is clearly, uh, you know, a, a shot at the kind of America and the kind of vision that Democrats have wanted to lead. And with Democrats out of power, basically at every structure of government down to state legislative races, I think this is going to be a speech that Barack Obama wants to use to be able to give a platform for the future. He's going to look back at his legacy, talk about why Democrats uh, are strong and why they should believe in their values, fight for their values when they can, uh, and try to figure out what the way forward is and how to inspire uh, young people to join the Democratic Party. I fully expect Barack Obama to acknowledge uh, the historic significance of his presidency. He's the first black president. That's still a big deal. Um, He might not speak about it so bluntly, but I expect some of the themes that he hits to touch on that. And he's in a weird spot because so much of him being elected symbolized a lot of change. And for a lot of his supporters, the election of Trump was a direct slap in the face of that change. And so what he's going to have to do, or I think what he's going to try to do, is say, no matter what, like, something big still happened, namely the first black president. Yeah. Okay, a reminder, we cannot talk about all of the political news happening every week because there's just too much of it. But make sure to listen to your local public radio station or the NPR One app for much more of our coverage. Okay, time for some mail. Just a reminder, you can email us your questions or your comments to NPR Politics at npr.org. Of course, we cannot respond to everyone individually. Sorry about that. But it does really help to hear what you're curious about. This week, we heard from Travis. He wrote about a story written by our podcast colleague, Danielle Kurtzleben. That piece was all about a Pew survey and this stat, that one in five Americans is religiously unaffiliated. Yet, just one of 535 members of the new Congress is unaffiliated. So, Travis asked, at what point do you think it will not be political suicide to identify as an atheist, agnostic, or non-religious? Thanks for your time, Travis. Thank you, Travis. Who is the one member that is an atheist? Kristen Cinema. No, she's a nun. Oh, What's she's a nun? Yeah. yeah. Oh, there's an atheist. I, I heard N-U-N. I was like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, 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 people who uh, don't have a religious affiliation are called nuns. Uh, they have none. None, no affiliation. Uh, so this Pew study comes out like every few years. And a couple of years ago, I actually went to do a story interviewing members of Congress who identified as nuns. Uh, and at the time, there were a few more and none of them, even ones who I interviewed on a regular basis about other things, none of them wanted to talk to me about their non-religious affiliation. 
you know, I think some of this might change with age. I think that it's more acceptable uh, for people who are younger to say uh, that they don't necessarily have a belief in a God, uh, that they're maybe agnostic or atheist. But uh, I think what people misunderstand a lot of times about how non-representative Congress is, is that each congressional district are like mini elections where you have to kind of go through this funnel of acceptability in each and every one of those districts where a majority of that district has to vote for that kind of person. So instead of thinking, well, you know, X percent of the country is, you know, this identity or non-religious, 23 percent, according to the Pew survey, being non-religious, you're not going to get 23% of a majority of districts in the country <laughs> identifying non-religious. as non-religious. And I think that's what makes it yeah. tough. I would venture that there are a good number of politicians who are in the House and or Senate who identify as Christian but haven't been inside of a church in many years and probably don't think about God that much. Admits to is, I think, a key part of, of that. Yeah. Yeah, because we want our politicians to have some sort of moral core, and religion is kind of a shorthand for that, uh, or has been in American politics. And so you end up with people saying they have a religious affiliation. Also, they're asked, like, check a box, say what you are. And and most people will just be like, well, you know, I was a Presbyterian at some point. Yeah. All right. Next up, we got a recorded question from Iowa that we got just before the new year. Hey folks, I'm Esty, a 15-year-old from Iowa, and first off, I just want to thank you so much for making political analysis understandable for someone who just has begun to be interested. My question is about Trump's cabinet picks. Is there any significant chance that any of them will not be approved by the Senate? And if that occurs, what will happen next? Thanks so much, and happy holidays. Thank you, Esty. Hope you had a good holiday. So how about it? Could any of these picks not make it through? It's unlikely, right? Well, I would say that It would be very unlikely that anybody that has been nominated would be voted down. If anything, if it becomes apparent that someone might not have the votes they need, they would just withdraw before it comes up for a vote. And this does tend to happen. It is not unusual for one or maybe two of the initial nominees to maybe back out. If you remember in 2008, then President-elect Barack Obama nominated former Senator Tom Daschle to be his HHS secretary. And then through the course of that vetting process, it was revealed that Tom Daschle had not paid all of his taxes in full. Whoops, whoops. And he withdrew his nomination. So I would say in in the process of this vetting process that's going on now in these committee hearings, if something were to come up, that would become apparent that they could not get the votes. Either the Senate majority leader or some combination of people would probably inform the transition team, hey, so-and-so is not going to make it. Save yourself the embarrassment. We won't vote them down. And then that is when you would see someone withdraw themselves from consideration and allow the nominee to make another nomination. It is unlikely that anything would actually go to the floor and be voted down because that would require Republicans voting down their own president-elect nominee. And that seems pretty unlikely at this point. Although I feel like we are in a new world era where I have to caveat everything with being Trump is a different kind of president. Uh, And so, you know, old standards may not apply. Hashtag we'll see. (laughs) Hashtag stay tuned. I mean, I would say let's watch the uh, Rex Tillerson hearing because the one big divide between Republicans uh, and the current president is on Russia, and he very well may be a proxy for some of that fight. Uh, John McCain yesterday was quoted as saying that, asked if he would vote for Tillerson, and he said something about uh, whether or not pigs fly. 
You know, like, sure, there's always a chance pigs could fly. Now, that doesn't mean that Tillerson wouldn't get through, but it certainly reduces it by one. Does Lindsey Graham go along? Does Mike Pence have to be brought in to cast the final vote for a secretary of state? That's It's some drama that potentially could play out. Yeah. Okay. Also, shout out to Joshua, who wrote us about our discussion last week of all the celebrity deaths in 2016. There were significantly more, according to a BBC analysis of their obituaries. Joshua wrote, quote, In light of the demise of all these noted figures, luminaries of the 20th century, I feel that perhaps the transition from 1999 to 2000 did not signify the end of the 20th century. Perhaps 2016 transitioning to 2017 signals the actual end. As Donald Trump transitioned from president-elect to president, and as we continue to lose those who helped shape and define the 20th century, perhaps we are witnessing, as Churchill noted, the end of the beginning. Keep up the good work, all, and may you all have a fulfilling and happy new year. Thank you, Josh. Um, So I brought that article to us last week, and the BBC noted when they talked about more deaths this year, they found that the 60s were an explosion in popular culture, brought on with the rise of TV and the boomer generation, lots of different factors. So we live in an age now where there are just more celebrities that can die. Um, but I thought more about this question since I read it first. And I think that putting years or decades in, or centuries in really f- distinct categories takes time. And when you're living through these moments, it's really hard to clearly define them because you're in them. It's like trying to describe the entire forest as you walk through the forest. You can only see five or six trees at a time, right? And I think we'll need some more time removed from this year and this decade before we can really put a nice bow on it. Yeah, Josh's uh, note makes me think, where am I? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> where, where, I, I, it's, you know, these are big questions. Exactly. I would urge you, Joshua, to keep observing the culture And in a few years from now, look back on this time and see how it all feels. Um, Okay, it's time for Can't Let It Go. This is how we end the show each week with something we cannot stop thinking about, politics or otherwise. Susan Davis, you go first. Okay, I'll be quick. My Can't Let It Go this week is that Donald Trump continues to fill out his administration, and he announced a slew of White House hires this week. And one of the hires is Omarosa. Of, Omarosa Manigault Stallworth. <laughs> Say it again, Woo. Sam. Omarosa Manigault Stallworth. I think she's just Omarosa Manigault. She divorced. Now. She's yeah. divorced. And she just got recently engaged. So congratulations, uh, congrats, Omarosa. Congrats, Omarosa. The Trump administration has announced her official title is Assistant to the President and Director of Communications for the Office of Public Liaison. Um, one, it's just like perfectly Trump that Omarosa is going to work in the White House. She was a famously a contestant on The Apprentice. She's been in many iterations of reality shows since then. That is not why I can't let it go. I can't let it go <laughs> because I found out this week that I did not know before that Omarosa also worked in the Clinton White House mm-hmm. for Al Gore. Mm-hmm. And this is my favorite piece of political trivia that I have learned in a long time. And I like it because I feel like one day in the not too distant future, I'm going to win a game of Trivial Pursuit for the pie (laughs) with this piece of political knowledge. So I hope to never let it go because I think in like the 2025, 26 Trivial Pursuit update, this is going to be a question. Uh, You know, also on that list was Bill Stepien, who was Chris Christie's uh, top political aide during the Bridgegate scandal. He was fired from that post and he's going to be political director in the Trump White House. And Christie still gets nothing. Yep. Anyway, Tam, you're up. Okay, so mine is related, I would say, to Susan's. Last night, I realized I'm a little late to the party. I watched the new Celebrity Apprentice. But only one 
featuring... Whoopi the Celebrity Apprentice. Arnold Schwarzenegger, bodybuilder, terminator, uh, governator. Film actor. Yes. Yeah. Well, Terminator. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. And, and some other things. Uh, he uh, is now taking the spot of Donald Trump as the man who is going to vet these celebrity apprentice candidates. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I covered him as governor of California. And, and it is sort of this alternate universe thing where he went from entertainer to politician to celebrity apprentice guy. And then now the celebrity apprentice guy is going to be president. Of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger could never be president because he was not born in America. Although he did joke with Seth Meyers that uh, maybe that means I could be president, right? And uh, Seth Meyers said, no, no, you, you can't. Requires a constitutional amendment, which is very, very hard to do. <laughs> yeah, that is hard to do. <laughs> so the big question was, what will his tagline be? Will it be, you're fired, like Donald Trump? It's not a tumor. <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh, Great my movie. God. Great movie. Which movie is that from? Kindergarten Cop. Kindergarten Cop. Wait, oh. no. It's from Kindergarten Cop? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was from Total Recall. No. no. It's a, I, like when he pulled that thing comedy. out of his nose. Oh. No. What's the one he's in with Danny DeVito? Twins. Twins. Love that one. You're the film one left over. Classic. That yeah. was his thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, he didn't quote either of those movies, but here we go. Carrie, you terminated. But then there's more. Now, get to the chopper. Thank you, sir. Thank Absolutely. you. <laughs> which, which is from Predator, another oh, one of his fine films. Get to the chopper. Get to the Wait, chopper. Wait, why wouldn't he use, Tam, you won't be back? Oh! oh. Or, Sam, hasta la vista, baby. Yeah, yeah. very good. <laughs> so many better lines. Maybe he'll use other ones. You know, the great he might thing. mix it up, maybe, huh? And then as the helicopter flies away, the closing credits come up. And in addition to Mark Burnett and Arnold Schwarzenegger and some other people listed as executive producer, in a quick flash, you see the name Donald Trump. Because he is still an executive producer of this oh. show, technically. Sam. I'm going to go next. Uh, my colleague this week is a combination of two things that I love. Great writing and questionable fast food. Do tell. Go yes. on. There is a brilliant Wall Street Journal article this week called... The title is, Americans eat 554 million jack-in-the-box tacos a year, and no one knows why. <laughs> jack-in-the-box makes tacos. Oh, yes. dude, let well, me tell you. Hold on, wait. No, let me tell you first. Okay. Is it all actual right. meat? I'm a, I will reveal all. Okay, <laughs> you okay. just wait. I have so many questions. I know. So for those that don't know, for many, many years now, uh, Jack in the Box has sold tacos. And they are not just tacos. It is a tortilla wrapped around a beef filling that is then dunked into a deep fryer. Tacos deep fried. Once they pull it out, it is topped with American cheese, lettuce, and hot sauce. Um, This taco first appeared on their menu in the 1950s. And now it is the most popular item on its menu. It's a stoner food. It is an everybody food. Okay, I have a problem with this headline. This is a, an attempt at cheap clicks to say it works. No one knows why. No, no one. But, people are buying wait, them. Of course they know why. But the whole article goes into how everyone that says they eat these tacos also admits that they're pretty crazy and like. So one guy says that these tacos are quote vile and amazing. 
lots of other <laughs> folks quoted say, I don't know why I like it, but I like it. The lead line of this article, and this is some of the best thing I've read this month, this year so far, actually. It says, more than 1,000 times a minute, someone bites into what has been described as a wet envelope of cat food and keeps eating. <laughs> Oh, my God. Have you had had one of these? Oh, I've had several. Okay, so can you tell us why you like it? You know what it is? It's hot grease Uh Mm. on top of meat with carbs. The meat is like so... It's sloppy Joe-ish. Yeah, it's not um, distinct. It doesn't have a lot of definition. It's just sort of like a... It's like goulash. Yeah. You've had this too? Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, I expect this to start showing up at the Iowa State Fair. Well, all I'm saying is good. everything. (laughs) Anyways... Check out the article. It is a brilliant, fun piece of writing. Another fun fact from this piece, Selena Gomez, pop star, recently had a birthday cake made of jack-in-the-box tacos. There's that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, Domenico, what you got? Okay, my clig is the No Fun League, otherwise known to most Americans as the NFL or the National Football League. You know, I'm watching some football over the weekend, and I'm watching the Packers-Lions game, and Devontae Adams, who's a wide receiver for the Packers, scores a touchdown, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he does this amazing thing. He, in full uniform, pads, helmet, 360 on the goalpost and dunks it down. People don't realize that goalpost is 10 feet high. That's high. Same height as a basketball hoop, and he's in full pads. This was awesome. I was like, wow, that was great. I thought it was cool. Yeah. And then the ref underneath the goalpost throws a flag. And I said, when did dunking on goalposts become outlawed in the NFL? I started looking into it. Apparently, in 2014, they passed a rule saying they're going to include dunking on the goalposts as using the ball as a prop. You know, and they've grandfathered in some things like oh. the Lambo leap, which people might know at what Green Bay games. When you like they, jump into yeah, the they jump crowd. into the crowd and people pat them on the you know back or whatever, and they hold them up. Like you're gonna grandfather that in, but you can't dunk on the goalposts. I just feel like they've gotten you know so no fun. I just hope the NFL refs <laughs> never see the things that we do once we leave the studio. I dance hardcore, or not have socks on. That'd be a, like a penalty too, not right? Have shoes on. Oh, shoes. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's it for today. Thank you to those who keep writing us with support for the podcast and to tell us that you've given to your local public radio station. That, more than anything, helps us continue to do the show. We'll talk to you next week. Episodes on Tuesday night and Wednesday night. I'm Sam Sanders, reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. Let's all go to Jack in the Box. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. It's not 2 a.m. yet. (laughs) 